If you have your Bibles, um, take those out and turn with me to Psalm 77. We'll look at the entire psalm. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, the psalm of Asaph. And here's the psalm or song. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints, Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, shut, has, has he in anger shut up his compassion? Verse number 10, and then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is, what God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and it shook. And your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is um, the reading of God's word. You can be seated and let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Father, as we read in your word in like Acts chapter two, it talks about how the disciples, how they gathered together and they seated themselves beneath the apostles teaching. And it says that all fell upon every heart. Like they stood in awe of you. And Father, I, I pray today on this rainy Sunday morning in January that we, would, that we would steal away from the world and we would be present with you and that we would see your great and gracious work and that we would stand in awe of you, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be honest with our own emotions. Maybe it's emotions we're feeling presently. Maybe it's emotions we felt in the past. Maybe it's emotions that we'll feel in the, in the future in this um, sermon and this text will help prepare us, Lord. But Lord, we give thanks to you, a God who meets us in the realness of our emotions. Nowhere in the Bible do you say, clean up your act and get, your, get yourself in order and then you can come and pray. But prayer is an invitation like you in your gracious heart, you invite struggling sinners like ourselves to come to you and to bring all of our nastiness and to bring all of our sin and bring all of our emotional baggage and empty it out at your feet. But never do you just leave us there, Lord. But your word, you carry us through as we even see in this text, Lord. 
So Lord, be present to us. May this be helpful and preparatory to living out real lives of faith. In your name we pray, amen. Um, and so, I don't know, like, uh, it feels weird to say, um, for, for me maybe, it feels weird to say Happy New Year. Maybe because like we're six days in. Maybe because it was like on New Year's Eve is when we met. And so it, it, it feels like in some ways, Happy New Year's. And then again, maybe I'm just saying this because I ate McDonald's yesterday. I mean, I, five days ago, I said to myself, I'm not gonna eat fast food. And then I, I made it to yesterday. I didn't even confess that to my wife, but I ate a 10 piece chicken nugget and they were just straight out of the deep fryer. The fries were straight. I mean, that doesn't happen very often, right? It was almost like a, a gift from the Lord or maybe it was from Satan, I don't know. But it's made me want them again because they were so daggone good. But I'm just saying it is New Year's and I don't know how your New Year's resolutions are going. Um, maybe you've made a list of them to do this and do that. Um, possibly some of yours were spiritual in nature and you said, hey, I wanna pray more and I wanna pray better. And I hope that's true. I hope it's like, hey, I wanna read and you got a Bible reading plan and I'm encouraging you to do that. But I'm also reminding you, you're probably gonna fail, but just get up on that horse and keep going. We generally here at the point, we start off the new year with a couple of weeks in prayer to encourage us and to teach us what prayer is. And so that's even why each time we, we just name it, Lord, teach us to pray. It's to cry the disciples in Luke chapter 11 when they ask Jesus, the only request that they ask Jesus to teach them to do something is this right here. Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their lack of prayer, rebuke them for their faith, but he leads them in a prayer, teaching them how to pray. And so first of all, we say that, that's the heart and the posture of Jesus is to, to help us, to teach us, to draw us into prayer. And second thing I would say to us is prayer is something that we can learn and it's something that we're continuously learning. I've never met a saint or any person that said, hey, you know what, I've learned how to pray and I, I'm good there. Like every saint, every maturing Christian is saying, hey, I'm constantly desiring to learn more about prayer and the Lord's teaching me more about prayer. And so it's in that, that, we, uh, in, in that climate, in that, in that attitude of our hearts that we intersect this moment. Now, what is prayer? And you could simply say our prayer is just talking to God. And prayer is, um, well, well, that is what it is, but it's also more than that. It's not less than that, that's exactly what it is. It's you talking to God, but it's teaching us how even to talk to God. And so we use this definition for prayer. It's from a, an ancient guy from the 1600s by the name of John Bunyan. He said this, that prayer is sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart of the soul to God through Christ and the strength and the assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to the word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. Now that's a mouthful and we don't have time to break all of that down, but we'll just take that first part. Prayer is the sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or the soul to God. And so we're really honing into that. This is kind of where, where, where we're going and how it kind of hits this Psalm, Psalm 77 is, is prayer is the God-given means by which we process hard, heavy, difficult emotions. See that, that same thing there, the, the heart and the soul, you're pouring it out, right? These, these hard, heavy, difficult emotions that you and I feel because we're living in this world we're living under the curse of our rebellion against God. We're living in light of our own sin and our own sinful proclivities. And we're living with other sinners that will sin against us. 
Living in this world produces hard, difficult emotions. That is a given. Like hard, difficult, heavy emotions. They are inevitable. We all feel them, experience them. We experience seasons of them. Depression and anxiety and and fear and anger and frustration. And we can go on and on with those hard, heavy, difficult emotions. I talked about last week about loneliness and feeling forgotten. Like every one of us, like our heart resonates with that truth that we have felt feeling such as that. The question is, what do we do with them? And you got a couple of options what you do when you feel emotions like that. The first thing that you could do is you can deny them. You can pretend like they're not there. You can say, you know what, I don't really feel that way. I really feel this way. Or you can just keep going on and on with life. Like I, I, not as a generality, but a lot of times that's what I think us men do. We just ignore them, we stuff them down, we pretend they're not there, we put up the stiff upper lip, we know how to play hurt, we just press through. But whenever we deny ourselves of the truth of the emotions that we feel, it's kind of like, and maybe this is another one of your New Year's resolutions. Maybe you got a New Year's resolution to do better in your finances and to get out of debt. Well, let me give you this tip. Never pay your debt with debt. That never works. Never pay your electric bill with a credit card because you can't pay for it in that moment. But when we deny ourselves emotions, it's kind of like the same thing. We're just deferring the payment. Sooner or later, you're going to have to pay up. Pay up, sucker. Sooner or later, you're going to have to pay the piper. And so sometimes what we'll do is we'll say, you know what, I'll swipe a credit card because I really don't have the money right now to pay the electric bill. But then guess what happens? The credit card comes due. And then you got to pay for the electric bill and the exorbitant interest that you've got on the credit card. And you're like, man, I didn't know this was financial peace. No, it's everything, right? And we do the same thing emotionally. We defer the payment. We kick the can. We pretend like, oh, well, I, you know what? I'll, I don't have to deal with that emotion right now. I can defer it and I can delay it, but payday comes sooner or later. Like our, our bodies and our emotions, they, they keep a track record. They're keeping a score. And sooner or later, we're going to have to feel those feelings. We're going to have to come into those feelings. And we'll talk even more about that. Second thing we can do is we can live in denial, but sometimes we can just give ourselves to those feelings. We just feel all the feelings. And what that oftentimes leads us to is to leads us into despair and fatalism. We can emotionally explode in anger or in frustration or the opposite. We can just kind of curl up in a ball and we can shut down and just totally give ourselves to those feelings. But the Bible gives us a better path for dealing with those inevitable real emotions, those hard, difficult emotions that we feel how to, the Bible gives us a, a way to process that pain, the pain that we feel, and the way to do it is in and through prayer. And even a certain kind of prayer that's found in the Bible, and it's called the prayer of lament. It's called the prayer of lament. Whenever those disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus could have said to those disciples, I already have, I've inspired 150 prayers for you in the book of Psalms, because that's what the book of Psalms is. In the middle of the Bible, there is a book that instructs us and guides us and leads us how to do two things, how to sing to God and how to pray to God, coming together in one book, 150 of them, there's 150 Psalms, and one third of that 150 are psalms of lament. 
You say, what is lament? Well, lament could just be defined as a, a loud cry or a howl or a passionate expression of grief. However, in the Bible, lament is more than just sorrow or talking about sadness, but rather lament is a, it's a prayer offered up in pain that eventually leads to trust. And you can find that quote in a thousand other great quotes in this book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Teaching Us How to Pray Prayers of Lament by Mark Vagrop. Fantastic book. I highly recommend it to you. So lament is a, a prayer, an honest, sensible pouring out of your affections, emptying of yourself in pain that eventually leads to trust. And that's that process that I want to talk about. If we look at this text in Psalm 77, if you have your Bibles, uh, keep them out. We're going to walk through for the next few minutes. We're going to walk through this text, making comment along the way, and then we'll tie it up. But Psalm 77 is a, it's a psalm of lament. Did you, did you feel like the emotions dripping from it? Do you see the, the place where the, where the psalmist is and why he's crying out the words and adjectives used throughout it? Now notice in the beginning, it's a song sung by the choir. It's like, I, I, I love the psalms for this reason. These are songs. We don't really know what the cadence or the beat or the instrumentation is. Like I read psalms like this and I think it's gotta be like, a, like an old country song, not the new country like, like Florida Georgia Line, they, they've never suffered. Their hearts have never broke, been broken. Their singing is just so, well, I don't want to offend anybody, but it's just not the same as the old country songs that are coming from a place of brokenness. The guy's dog's left and his wife is left and his mom's died and his pickup truck won't start. That's real suffering that he's singing about in those songs there. But we notice here, he says, to the choir master, it's a song it's a song, as someone has said, it's a song being sung in a, in a minor key. It's a song with a, a little bit of sadness to it, as we see. According to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. And so, Je, hang on, Jeduthun and Asaph are two, they're two um, worship leaders. They show up in Second Chronicles, First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. They're appointed by King David. They serve in the, in the temple. It's those two and a guy by the name of Heman. He-Man is in the Bible. Maybe you didn't know that, but he's in the Bible. His name's He-Man, and he's, le he's a leader, a song leader there. And so the three of these together, they're the primary leaders in the temple in the beginning. And you see here, though, their song that they're reading about or their song that they're singing about, the song that has been written, is one that's coming from a state of trouble. You see that in, in, in verse number two. In the day of my trouble, in the day of my distress, in the day of my turmoil, is what he's saying here. He's not just talking about petty annoyances in life, but what he's talking about, he's talking about difficult, heavy emotions. That's kind of the, the flavor of the psalm that hopefully you picked up on. Again, it's dripping with emotion and it's dripping with, with heaviness in this. I've said, um, and Pastor Bo said it again, that so this morning, I want, to, I want to teach us how we can pray. Last week, it was on loneliness when we feel alone, when we feel forgotten. This week, I said, we, I, want to, I want to teach us on how to pray whenever we feel frustrated, angry, and sad. 
Now, those, those sound like three very separate emotions to us that we can kind of compartmentalize. Like sometimes I'm really angry and this is what's made me angry. And sometimes I feel this sense of frustration because, you know, I can't control the world. And sometimes I just feel sad. But the reality is oftentimes those three emotions come with the same root. And it's the root emotion that the psalmist is feeling whenever he writes Psalm 77. What is that root emotion? It's, it's found here. And the root emotion that he finds himself is, is in the state of grief. He finds himself in a state of grief. Look at with me, jump down to verse number 10. The psalmist says, then I said, I will appeal to this. And then he goes on in that. But if you'll notice in your ESV Bibles, there's a, there's a footnote there. For me, it's a number three. It's a superscript, a three that leads you into a footnote. And then at the bottom of your Bible, it gives you another definition, another way that we can translate that. That whenever the psalmist writes this phrase, and again, he's writing in the Hebrew, that we gotta take the Hebrew and then translate it into the English. And so he's writing in the Hebrew and he's using a Hebrew phrase there that is a little hard for us to translate into the English. Now it's a fine translation to say, I will appeal to this, but notice what your uh, footnote says. Another way that we could translate this would say, this is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I'm gonna, this is my problem. This is my beef I've got with God, but look at the emotion. I like the word grief because I think that is the description that he's describing here, is a sense of grief that he feels. That's the emotional struggle that's undergirding. The psalmist's cry is one of grief, and grief is one of the deepest, heaviest, hardest emotions that you and I will ever face as human beings, is it not? It absolutely is. And what we need to recognize is grief will, it will manifest itself in our hearts, in our lives, in our emotional states, in a multitude of different ways and as different feelings. Sometimes it will show up as anger. Sometimes it will show up as frustration. Sometimes it will show up as sadness. That grief comes because we experience losses in our life. And with those losses, there are fears that are attached to it. Again, grief is very, very deep. It's very deep. It's not a surface emotion. It's a deep emotion. And tied up into grief comes a sense of loss. And with those losses come real fears. And those fears and those losses, they can trigger emotions, other emotions. Frustration, low grade and constant frustration seething and simmering anger, an overarching sense of sadness. And let's just be honest, there is plenty in this life to feel grievous about. There are plenty of occurrences that have happened in our real lives, our even blessed lives, and yet we bump into things that cause us to experience loss and to experience grief. First and foremost, we think about things that happen in life that cause us to grieve, first and foremost, we would think about death. Everyone here has been touched by the fear and the loss and the grief associated with death, have we not? We've all been touched by death, death of a loved one, death of people who are near and dear to us, people we love. And grief is the right response to that. That's how, how do you, how do you, what do you do when you come face to face with death? Well, you do the, what Jesus did. 
He didn't deny his feelings. He didn't neither did he give in to his feelings either. But Jesus, in the beginning, he felt his feelings. And when Jesus comes to the grave of a loved one, a friend, a dear friend, Lazarus, what does it say that Jesus did? It's the shortest verse in all of the Bible. Jesus wept. And that's what grief does. It causes us to grieve. It causes us to weep. And we have felt that. Not only do we grieve things that happen to us, but oftentimes we grieve things that have not yet happened in our lives. We grieve at the loss of hope. We have expectations with our lives and hopes and dreams with our lives or our children's lives or other people's lives. And then sometimes they don't happen. Sometimes they don't occur. They haven't occurred yet. And it causes us to grieve. The book of Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Grief is heart sickness. Loss of friendships, loss of jobs, loss of things, loss of hope. And how do you process the pain, the fear, the frustration that accompanies loss? You're like, hey, who invited the good news bear this morning? Pastor, that's a great sermon for January 6th. I hope it's helpful. I hope it's helpful. I feel like it's my job is to equip us for such things because you will face them. They happen. Maybe they're happening now. And with a congregation our size, I can look across the room and I know what 2023 has looked like for many of us. It's been, for many of us, grief-inducing. And rightfully so. And what do we do with that grief? The Bible gives us a plan. Psalm 77 gives us a pattern. Gives us a plan. Look at the pattern in the text. It, it, maybe you couldn't pick up from it, but here's kind of the, the pathway. It starts off with an honest struggle, admission of deep pain, followed by some tough questions in prayer, followed by, though, determined trust, and then lastly, biblical grounding. That's where he ends with grounding. Grief knocks the wind out of us, pulls the, the carpet out from under us, and he ends with being grounding, grounding himself in the character of God and the work of God. So that's, that's the flow, and that's what we'll look at um, for the next hour and 10 minutes. No, not that long, but maybe. All right, look at verse number one. Verse number one, he says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me, is what he says. Notice that Notice, first of all, is the psalmist is clearly continuing to reach out to God. Do, do you see the language that would talk about that? He's in the midst of his pain. He's in the midst of his grief, but he, he's not giving God the silent treatment. He's not shutting down to God. He's keeping himself open, and he's, he's searching for God. He's looking for God. He's praying. He's crying out to God. Look, in the day of my trouble, in the day of my distress, in my turmoil, look at what he says. I will seek the Lord. I've made up my mind. I've, I've already determined that I'm going to continue to seek the Lord despite the trouble that I feel, despite the circumstances and the stress. I'm going to continue to do this. In the night, my hand, he says, is stretched out without wearying. What's that mean? What's the posture of prayer, right? It would be like this right here. Lord, I'm, I'm pleading to you. Like this is, a, he's up in the middle of the night and his hand is stretched out. God, where are you? I'm, I'm looking to you. It's a posture of prayer that he's describing there. I, I'm not tired of that. I'm continually doing that. It's not a one-night deal here. 
His insomnia has pressed more. It's gone over a couple of nights, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, maybe even years. We don't know. But he's like, I'm not going to get tired of this. I'm going to continue to pray. I'm going to continue to seek you out. And listen, this is faith. This is a, in these first two verses, we have a description, a definition of what faith is. That oftentimes we can erroneously believe that faith is the absence of questions or the absence of hard and difficult emotion or the absence of pain or the absence of real problems. Or, or maybe you think that, that what it is, is is faith is denying yourself those feelings even. And that's not what faith is. Seeking the Lord despite our pain, despite our questions, despite our troubles, despite our turmoils, despite our doubts, that is faith. True prayer is being honest before the Lord. Now, again, we have in the Bible, we have warnings against grumbling and complaining. We talked about that a little bit last week. But you got the children of Israel who, who, who are given a strong judgment, right? They're in the wilderness with God, and then God judges the people. And one of the judgments or the reason for the judgment that he brings that leads them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and never go into the promised land, as he says, they're a bunch of whiners and complainers. You go, well, I don't want to be that person. But listen, there's a big difference between crying out to God in prayer and grumbling. There's a huge difference in those two things. Grumbling is doing this. It's what the children of Israel did. They questioned God's character and God's goodness behind his back. They grumbled and complained to each other and to their leader, Moses. They didn't cry out to God. Grumbling is, I'll say it again, it is complaining about God's goodness behind his back. Lament is being honest with the Lord at his feet. There's the difference. See, the psalmist isn't grumbling in this text. He's lamenting the circumstances that are leading him to this emotional pain. He's lamenting the emotional pain that he's, that he's doing, but where is he doing it? Here. That's lament. Lord, I'm still seeking you. Lord, I'm still looking after you. I'm I'm diligently seeking you. I'm not getting tired of seeking you. I'm here at your feet. Now, there's some things that I don't understand, and that will lead us to the next part. But that is what true faith is. The psalmist, notice he is doing right things, even though they're not producing the intended results. What is the intended results that he wants to feel? Well, he wants to feel a sense of relief. He wants God to show up and do something. He wants hope. He wants God to end his trouble, to end his distress. But look at what he says in 2B. I'm doing the right things. I'm crying out to you. I'm praying. I'm seeking you. But 2B, but my soul refuses to be comforted. In fact, when I remember you, God, I moan. God, when I remember you, that you have sovereign power, that you see me in this place, Lord, I, I moan at that. When I meditate, when I think about God, that's what meditation is. It's slow, deliberate. It's it's not an emptying of your mind. Like in meditation, in New Age meditation, they teach you how to empty your mind. You know, don't think about anything. Just think about mm, whatever. I don't know. Hear this gong bell and it rings out. And then you think about that gong bell ringing out and you're just emptying your mind. Biblical meditation is very different. It's slow, deliberate, a filling of your mind with truth from Scripture. When he says, I meditate, I'm thinking about you, God. But whenever I do that, look, it's not producing the intended results. My spirit faints. Selah. Now, selah is a musical term and it indicates a pause in the song. 
It's, it's pause and reflect in the song. So it'd probably be maybe the instrumentation would just carry it up. The words would stop. There would be just this pause. Now pause. Let that ring out. And again, he's describing deep pain here. He's doing the right things, but they're not producing the intended results, and that is faith. Faith is continuing in right actions, even if the absence of right feelings is there. See, we, we, get, we feel this sometimes, do we not? Like, well, which one should come first and which one is to follow? The chicken or the egg? And the chicken and the egg in situations like this becomes, should I do right actions or should I have right feelings? Like the last thing we would say God wants is a hypocrite. So I don't feel like praying, so should I pray or should I not pray? And so even what faith is, is continuing in right actions, praying, meditating, reading, searching, seeking God, even in the absence of right feelings. Rarely will you feel your way into the right actions, but you can act your way into right feelings. So what are you saying? We're to fake it until you make it? Look at, look at the psalmist. He ain't faking nothing. That's good English right there. He isn't faking anything. He's being honest. That's what we're saying. Come to God and be honest, honest about his emotions, honest about his circumstances, honest about the fact that he feels like he's getting gypped. He's being honest with the Lord. He continues to describe his deep emotional pain. Number four, verse four, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. He can't sleep. His pain, his anxiety, his turmoil, it's keeping him up at night. Now, some would say sleep is overrated. Depends on how many days you go without sleep. This is something that's long in this man's life and he's feeling it. He's exhausted. He's stunned. He's silenced. He's speechless. Like, has life done that to you yet? Has it stunned you, silenced you, punched you in the gut and knocked the wind out of you? Give it some time, it will. How are you gonna get through that? Look at how he gets through it. He says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Remember what I said this guy was? He's a songwriter. And so now what he's drawing back on is, hey, I remember some other songs that I've written, some other songs that I've, that I've sung to you. I'm remembering those songs. He's continuing to worship. He's listening to some praise music is what he's saying. I'm going back and I'm remembering. I mean, like he, this is one of the guys that leads the congregation in 2 Chronicles chapter five when Solomon dedicates the temple. He's one of the worship leaders and he sings these beautiful songs unto the Lord. He's one of the leaders. He's like, man, I remember that day. That was a great day, but today's just not that day. That's what he's saying. I remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my, my spirit made a diligent search. His spirit is making a diligent search. I think what he's thinking of maybe possibly here is I'm, I'm looking in the Bible, we would say. I'm searching the scriptures. And as I'm searching the scriptures, what he says here is things don't seem to be matching up. As I'm, as I'm reading it, as I'm thinking about it, I'm going through the scrolls and I'm remembering you, God, how you used to work in your days of old and the years long ago. There seems to be an incongruence here, an incongruence with the way that God has worked with the, the way that God is currently working in my life. And that's gonna lead him to ask six tough questions. The Bible reveals the character of God and these questions all revolve around the character and the work of God. I've thought about who you are and I've thought about how you work and there seems to be some incongruence with the way that you were, 
with the way that you are right now in my life? And so six tough questions that he asked. They're rhetorical questions, but they're important questions. Question number one in verse seven, will the Lord spurn forever? He feels spurned by the Lord. Have you ever been, have you ever been spurned? Have you ever shown your love to someone and then they've spurned that love? First time I, I met Luann, I knew immediately that I wanted to marry her. We were 15. I didn't know that maybe that I wanted to marry her. But I gave it a couple of months. I met her, I met her uh, early, um, actually late December. She laid eyes on me and thought I was cute. I didn't see her that day, but then like the, we left for vacation, came back on a day like today. It's like 30 something years ago today. And I saw her for the first time. I was like, holy cow. I asked that girl out, way out of my league. And I asked her out and she said, no. She put me in the friend zone. She spurned my love, my affection. I did it in a very cute, winsome, romantic way. And she said, thanks, but no thanks. I didn't take no for an answer. And a couple months later, we got married. No, a couple months later, <laughs> began to date. And five years later, we got married. And we've been married a long, long time now. But has your love ever been spurned? And what he's feeling here is God has spurned him. God has rejected him. God has turned him away. Question number two, and never again to be favorable. Question three, look at what he says. He says, has God, has his, has God's steadfast love ceased? Now that term right there in, in verse number eight, steadfast love, there's a handful of of Hebrew um, words that you need to be familiar with as a follower of Christ, I would say. There's just a handful. This is one of those words. It's the word hesed. Now, if you were good in your Hebrew, we'd say hesed, but it's the word hesed. That's the word. And there's not a good English word to really translate hesed. Here, it's steadfast love, and that's a fine word to translate it into. But think about it. We just don't even use the word steadfast. It's God's unfailing love. Look at what he's saying. He's saying, Hesed is God's unceasing love. And look at what the psalmist is saying. God has your unfailing, unceasing love failed and ceased. You say, that's impossible, right? Like, hopefully you felt that. That's, that's impossible. How could God's unceasing love cease? If it ceases, it's not unceasing love. So which one's wrong? And you kind of get the idea. Like there is a, there's not a lot of reason to our emotions sometimes. But sometimes our, our emotions and our emotional state, if we just give ourselves to us, it will lead us to places of unreasonableness. And that is an unreasonable statement right there. Has your unfailing love failed? Well, it's not unfailing then. Has your, the, the answer's right there. It's not a question, it's a statement. Has your unfailing love failed? No, it can't fail because it's unfailing by its very nature. And that is a reality for us, even in that. We see that emotional pain, it, it, it leads us to an unreasonableness. Things don't make sense because emotions can be deceiving and they can be unreasonable. And praying brings reason to the unreasonableness of our souls. And that's what it's doing here in the psalmist even. Question number four, are his promises at an end for all time? I mean, what he's saying there is, God, you're not trustworthy. You've made these promises and now you're not keeping those promises. You're not to be, you're a liar. That's what he's saying. God, you've lied to me. You've deceived me. You're not being honest. You're not being trustworthy. Question number five, God has, he says, forgotten to be gracious. Like we gotta remind ourselves to be gracious. 
My grandmother used to always give this piece of advice almost every time that we would leave. Her piece of advice would be stay sweet. That's what she would say. She would especially say it to Luann, not because she wasn't sweet, but especially whenever I became in ministry, she was like, hey, as a pastor's wife, here's what you need to remember, sweetie, stay sweet. And what is she saying in there? Hey, circumstances in life will lead you to be bitter. Stay sweet. Sweetness isn't always gonna be your default emotion. And the same thing he's saying here. God, you've forgotten to be gracious, but listen, grace is who God is. It's inherent in his character, unlike us. He doesn't have to remember to be gracious. Sometimes we have to remember to be gracious. Sometimes we have to remember to be sweet. Sometimes we have to remember to be kind. God is not like that. He is always gracious. And you see what's happening here? Not only will emotional pain lead us to be unreasonable, emotional pain will mar our view of God and his character. It'd be equivalent to me smearing uh, grease, right? Get some, get somebody go out and get me some rear end grease out of, their, out of their rear end of their car, and I'm gonna smear it all over my glasses and see how well I can see. And that's what emotional pain does to us, to God. It mars our view of who God is. It distorts our, our view of who God is. Question number six, has he in his anger, has he turned off, has he like a spigot? shut off his compassion. I knew, I knew some guys one time that this guy moved into a, a, a house that had been converted over into a duplex. And the guy wanted to, they, they converted over, he wanted to save some money. So surely this wasn't a past inspection, but they, there was only one uh, electrical panel. It was on this one, my friend's side of the house. And so these other guys, they rented out the other side of the house. And he'd say, when those guys would make me mad, I would just go over and turn off a breaker in their house, you know? I don't know. And he said, then I pretend not to be home. They'd be knocking on the door. Hey, our refrigerator's off. Our lights aren't on. And he'd say, I just pretend like that and I'll be home. That'll teach them, right? And that's what he's saying. God, you flipped the breaker on your compassion toward me. In your anger, in your frustration, I made you so angry. I must've made you so frustrated that you've flipped the breaker on it. And then he says, Selah again. Pause and think about that. Pause and think about those questions that you just asked God. Pause for just a second and think about how you feel. See, prayer puts our feelings into words. And sometimes when we say those words, it's, it's helpful to, to hear what's coming out of our mouths. Do you really believe that about God? Is that really true with how God has been? Those words put things into perspective and that's what he's doing here. And then in verse number 10, we see the shift. Then, that's the shift. Then he says, then I said, I, I will appeal to this. This is my grief. Here is my problem. Here's my beef. My, my beef is this grief is making me feel this way to the years of the right hand of the most high. What he's saying is, God, you have a track record with all of your people. You've been going at this some little time. You've been going at this for a long time and your people are at your right hand. And we talked about that last week. That's a place of preference and a place of favor in a place of, uh, of honor. And he's saying, your people are at your right hand. Where's Jesus right now? Right this minute, where's Jesus? In heaven, on a throne, at the right hand of the Father. That's important. At a place and a position of favor and honor and love. And he's saying, your people are at your right hand. And you've got a track record with how you deal with your people. And I'm one of those people. Notice what he's doing here is he's turning from the things that feel true to truth. He, he's, he's turning to that. No longer is he just focusing on his feelings. 
but he's moving. He's moving from those questions. He's moving from that deep pain and he's moving into that biblical grounding that we're talking about. It's the truth from scripture that is objective truth that enables us to move from trouble to trust. It's objective truth that lifts us up out of our subjective feelings that moves us from a place of trouble to a place of of trust. The loss and the grief and the pain has jerked the rug out from under him. It's knocked the wind out of him. And now he's grappling for footing. And that footing that he's gonna put his foot in lands him into the Bible. Look at what he says in verse number 11. I will remember, there's the important part. I'm gonna remember it. I'm gonna recall it to my memory. I'm gonna write it down. I'm gonna think about it. I'm going to remember. And what's he remembering first? The deeds of the Lord. Yes, he says, I will remember your wonders of old. The shift is now revolving around present troubles, present problems to to past faithfulness. That present trust, it begins with past faithfulness. That's the pattern that he's showing us here is when we begin to remember. The present trust, it comes from remembering the past acts of faithfulness and remembering a God who does not change. Look at verse number 12. I will ponder all your work, the totality of your work, the totality of your hand, your entire portfolio. I'm gonna think about that. I'm gonna meditate. Again, that act of meditation. I'm gonna think deliberately and slowly about all of your mighty deeds. Notice there's a shift in verses 10 through 12. This is important. I will... I will, verse 12, I will. But look at 13, there's a shift. Your way, he says. What God is like, our God, you are the God, he says in 14. In 15, with your arm, do you see the shift? The shift from I, I, I to you, you, you. Verse 13, your way, oh God, is holy, period. Mic drop, argument over. God, your way is holy. It's right. It's good. It's perfect. It's consistent with your character. It's consistent with your love for me, period. Holiness is otherliness, separate from us, morally perfect. He's saying, God, your way, the way that you lead, it's holy, it's perfect, it's right. It may not feel holy to me, but I gotta trust in your character because you do nothing other than what's holy. In your way, oh God, for me, it's right, it's good, it's perfect, it's loving, it's consistent with your character, it is holy. It is holy. We as parents, we understand this, do we not? because we make decisions for our kids and our kids will cry out like that feels so unjust and that feels so unfair and that feels so wrong. And what do we say to our kids in those moments? Trust me. When I was a young guy, probably nine or 10, 12, maybe years old, there was a group of kids that I lived in a little town in Northern Kentucky called Walton, small, small town. We lived on the kind of the, the edges of Walton and there was a group of guys that would all ride their bicycles down to Frontier Pizza and they would hang out and play video games and do bad stuff and get into trouble. Not a great group of people. And I go to my dad and I go, hey dad, can I ride my bike down to Frontier Pizza? And my dad's like, no, I don't want you hanging out with those kids. I'd be like, what? They're my friends, dad. And my dad's like, hey, trust me, right? And then whenever I was about 22 
Half those dudes were locked up, half the other half on drugs. Like I go through the list and thinking about them, I'd be like, man, thank you, dad. You did the right thing. You protected me from those guys that would have been terrible influences in my life. Thank you for that. In that moment, I didn't feel that. I, my, my, my view of what I needed in that moment was very obscured by my age and my immaturity, but you as an older, wiser father, like you were leading me and your way was right. And I, I went to him. A couple of times I've gone to my dad and I said, hey, thank you for doing that. Thank you for that advice. Thank you for protecting me there. Then I couldn't see it, I see it now. And we as parents, we do that now, right? We become our parents and we're telling our kids, no, yo, you can't do that. No, you can't go there. And what is at the heart of it? Is it control? No, it's protection. And the same thing he's saying here, God, your way is holy. It's right, it's true. I may not see it. I may not understand it. It reminds me of Isaiah 55, eight and nine, where he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Selah, period, mic drop. It comes though, how will you answer the next question though? One last question, what God is great like our God? It's a foundational theological position. What God is like this God of ours? No one. But it's really an understanding the heart of God in this. What is God like in your imagination about God? This is where we talk about Tozer who says the, the greatest thing that will enter into our minds is what we think about when we think about God. And when I say to you, God, what enters into your mind, if it's an old mean curmudgeon that wants you to have no fun in your life, then yeah, then what God is like our God, you'd be like, plenty of gods out there that are like that. But what God is a loving father gracious and holy and good that knows all things and leads us well and loves us with an undying, unfailing, never-ending love that wants good for us and flourishing with us. If that's your God, then you say, I can submit to that. And notice where his, where his heart goes. See, he feels lament is one thing and then he's, he's beginning to see the character and the nature of God. But then notice, notice where, where he goes. He goes to a place in the Bible he begins to recall the most prominent event in the Old Testament that displayed the character of God. See, remember, he's, he's questioning the faithfulness of God and the love of God and the favor of God for his people, the promises of God and the grace of God. And there's one Old Testament event that perfectly, all of those things about God culminate in one event. All of those things, they, they come together as, as a manifestation and as proof of God's favor and God's love and God's promises and God's grace. And that one event is the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. That's the proving point for the children of Israel. That in the Old Testament is the greatest demonstration of God's faithfulness, love, favor, promises, and grace. It's when God frees his people and he leads them and they're in between a rock and a hard place. He leads them purposefully to the Red Sea, mountains on two sides, Red Sea in front of them, Pharaoh's armies coming behind them, and they're in desperate need of a miracle. And what does God do? He works a miracle. He divides the waters. That's what's being described here in verse 19. When the water saw you, my problem was all around me, but then God showed up. That's what he's saying. I remember that time in the children of Israel that... 
They needed a miracle. They were in a desperate place. They were fearful. They were about to die. They didn't know what they were gonna do. And then what happened? God, you showed up. And when you showed up, the waters, they saw you and they trembled. The waters, they saw you and they were afraid. They trembled. There's this storm and rain, thunder, lightning, whirlwind. All of this takes place. And then look, and then God, you led them through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Your footprints were unseen. You led the people. And do you see what's happening here? The psalmist is anchoring his questions and his hurting heart to the single greatest redemptive event in the life of Israel. The moment that defined all of God's character and defined God's ways with them. God was invisible, but his path was through the sea, through the great waters. That is the greatest event in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, that greatest event of God's redemptive deliverance for us is the cross. For us as Christians, our Exodus event, the place where we find our ultimate deliverance is the cross of Christ. It is there where all of our questions and all of our heartaches and all of our pains should be taken. The cross shows us that God has already manifested and proven himself to be for us and not against us. It is where God answers the question of his acceptance for you, his favor for you, his love, his unfailing, undying, never ceasing love for you, his faithfulness towards you, his promises and his grace. You say, how do I know this? How do I know that God loves me and has favor for me and is for me. Well, it's what Paul says in Romans the eighth chapter. You don't look inside your heart and you don't look to your circumstances to know whether God loves you or not, but you look to a bloody cross and an empty grave. Your greatest problem isn't death. Your greatest problem is how do sinners stand in front of a holy God? Your greatest problem isn't that thing unless that thing is your own sin that keeps you up at night. Your greatest problem isn't how are we gonna pay for this? How are we gonna afford this? Where are we gonna go? What are we gonna do about this diagnosis? That's not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem, your rock and your hard place was that you sinned against a holy, sovereign, just God. And what do you need? You need him to be favorable. You need him to be gracious and you need him to be loving. And he has declared that character and he's put it on display when, he, when his son laid down his life in your place for your sins. And that's what Paul does in Romans the eighth chapter. And he calls us to remember Christ and his forgiveness. And this morning, you and I, we get to take our laments to that very same place to the cross of Christ. As we remember Jesus' body that has been broken for us and his blood that has been shed to us as the single greatest act of God's declaration of his love for us and his deliverance and his redemption is here. It's right here in front of you. It's not found in your circumstances, it's not found in your, your feelings, all of those subjective things. It's objective. Happened 2,000 years ago. And that power and that grace and that goodness is available today. Bring your hearts here. Let's pray.